unabashed. The most unpredictable becomes a headline. The most volatile outrageous behavior. Unsubstantiated narratives, a battle of personalities. Welcome to Grand Tamasha. I'm your host, Milan Vaishnava of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. We're recording on May 6th, which is the polling date for Phase 5 of the general elections when voters in 51 constituencies will cast their ballots. This week, we're going to do something a little bit different. In place of our usual news roundup, today I'm speaking with Max Roddenbeck and Alex Trevelli of the South Asia Bureau of The Economist. In this week's newspaper, which is out on newsstands now, The Economist issued a sharply worded editorial titled, Under Narendra Modi, India's ruling party poses a threat to democracy. I'm pleased to have Max and Alex on the show to talk about this editorial and much, much more. Max and Alex, thanks for coming on the podcast. Great to be here. So I want to read a passage from the leader that I think will give our listeners a flavor of what it says. And I want to quote here. In his five years as prime minister, Mr. Modi has been neither as good for India as his cheerleaders foretold, nor as bad as his critics, including this newspaper, imagined. But today the risks still outweigh the rewards. Indians who are in the midst of voting in a fresh election would be better off with a different leader. Alex, let me ask you, tell us a little bit about how you see both the risks and the rewards of another five years of a Modi-led BJP government. Sure, Milan. The To start with the risks, which, which of course we found to outweigh the rewards, I guess the probably at the top of the list would be some of the... Um, more the nastier promises that uh, that the prime minister has made on the campaign trail this 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 time around, a lot of them especially um, to do with uh, gratifying claims of Hindutva and aggravating identity politics uh, around India. In particular, say the 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 NRC, the National Register of, of Citizenship in in the Northeast, and the possibility of applying that around the country, creating it with a, adding adding. Uh, to it a sort of pincer move uh, in the form of a citizenship uh, amendment, which would um, have the effect of endangering uh, the, the, the sense of security that Muslim citizens of India have uh, to being counted as, as first-rate citizens of India. Um, it's not spelled out always exactly that way, but it's, it, it's something that, that, uh, that both Modi and Amit Shah have come back to several times in the campaign trail. Uh, along with uh, rescinding guarantees to uh, partial autonomy that Kashmir has enjoyed. Um, that sort of thing could become a very ugly uh, new part of India during a second Modi term if, if these campaign trail uh, promises are kept. Um, the, the foreign policy has also been notably rash, uh, we find, especially after the Pulwama bombing and um, and played often for domestic gain, uh, and then and then as far as rash uh, maneuvers go, the 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 case of demonetization uh, is a good example of why we think that a very strong Modi government, one unhindered by the pressures posed by uh, opposition parties, um, can lead this this crew to doing uh, some very bad things. Uh, not only not the reforms that we wanted or that were promised in 2014. Um, but some some kind of uniquely uh, odd bad decisions. Again, to use demonetization as an example. Now, it, 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 it must be said in fairness, there are certain things that we could look forward to, uh, reasons for optimism, if uh, if it is uh, a Modi-led M- uh, NDA that, that forms the next government. It's, it's obviously nice to have uh, continuity in some of the, the top ministries. 
um, there's no substitute for experience in, in running uh, some of these parts of the bureaucracy too. And, uh, and foreign investors quite naturally like to hear that uh, the people they've already met are going to be the people running the show after 2019. Um, there are a lot of half-completed, sometimes uh, promising reforms that have been undertaken that we'd like to see through. Uh, the possibility of, of improved uh, cash benefit transfers, the refining of the bankruptcy law, um, a, a host of those things uh, could be done better with a renewed Modi government than with a replacement. Now, the leader has some choice words for the Congress party as well. In the end, it receives a sort of tepid endorsement. But the piece says that, quote, the Congress, the BJP's only national rival, may be hidebound and corrupt, but at least it does not set Indians at one another's throats. Then it continues to say it is a worthier recipient of Indians' votes than the BJP. Max, tell us a little bit about how you see the Congress, particularly how, if at all, the party has changed over the past five years since its 2014 election debacle. Yeah, well, as you, uh, you have to really go back to 2014 to remember just how awful that debacle was. I mean, uh, you know, to, to lose two-thirds of your seats in Parliament in one, one, one election is pretty pretty much of a slapdown. And I mean, there was, there was, there was, you might, I mean, it was virtually a sort of knockout blow to, 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 to the Congress in 2014. They were reduced down to less than a tenth of the seats of, of, of Parliament. Um, so uh, to bounce back from that is pretty good. I mean, back at that time, the BJP, their, you know, Modi's party was, was talking about having a Congress-free India. The idea, there was an actual idea of wiping them out completely across the country. That hasn't happened. I mean, Congress is still on the back foot. But um, they at least they're back in the game, uh, pretty much so. And I think there's also a kind of recognition uh, that they are the only real possible kind of national rival to to the BJP. And that's an important, um, you know, it's an important to to sort of at least sustain that kind of uh, position as the, as the only only serious national party. Um, much weaker than the BJP, uh, uh, and you know, seriously diminished from their historical level, but still back in the game uh, to a large extent. Um, it's also important to note that that in the last five years, you know, Rahul Gandhi, who uh, five years ago was considered very much a figure of ridicule, pretty much. I mean, uh, the number of stories that were told about him, you know, being always on holiday. Uh, there were rumors about cocaine and all kinds of things like that. He was dismissed as a, as a figure of, of, you know, as a kind of buffoon. Um, that is certainly no longer the 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 the, the, uh, the, the kind of Im image that he projects. I mean, he's not uh, yet up to the full stature of someone like Modi, who's a very experienced politician and a very gutsy and sort of earthy uh, politician. Uh, you know, Rahul Gandhi is not dealing with the same uh, sort of set of politician qualities, but he uh, he is now taken seriously in a way that he wasn't before. Um, and I, I think, you know, for the, the Congress now, there's a, there's a kind of, it's a bit of a mixed picture. They're back, but, uh, and Rahul is back as a leader, very much in charge, but uh, there's criticism of some of their failures during this campaign. Uh, did they write, make the right deals with other parties? Have they been too haughty and arrogant? Or uh, are they playing the game well? Um, it's it's still there are a lot of questions out there, and I think actually the the uh, one of the, the the many things that the the outcome, the result of this election will reveal is whether the Congress is is has lived up or not. And I mean, it's one of the great things about this election that 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 uh, uh, remains a mystery, uh, and we won't really know until the results come in. Now, many commentators have argued that if 2014 was India's kind of hope and change election, you know, with talk about Uchidin or good times for the Indian economy and clean governance and renewed investment, 
2019 is fast becoming India's fear election. You know, you're seeing all kinds of heated rhetoric about nationalism, the threat of terrorism, enemies abroad, enemies within. Max, how would you characterize the election campaign thus far? I mean, now that we're more than halfway done, if you had to sum it up for particularly some of our international listeners who maybe aren't following day to day, uh, how would you characterize it for them? Well, I, th- I think your summation is pretty good, calling it a fear election. I think that's pretty good to, 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 uh, to begin with. Um, it's been a pretty snappy and heated and ugly uh, campaign, actually. Uh, and uh, it's disturbed quite a lot of people, I think, in India. I mean, the sort of uh, uh, you know, personal insults going back and forth, uh, dissent to, to you know, in, uh, uh, stirring up uh, sectarian troubles, um, the compartmentalization of the of the, uh, the the electorate into sort of caste groups, uh, you know, ethnic groups, religious groups, etc. It's it's kind of it's it's been a slightly distressing uh, spectacle, I think, and and not uh, not um, you know inspiring to a lot of people in India. Um, but you know, at the same time, you know, it's an election that's gone mostly peacefully, which is a very good thing, and and quite smoothly so far, actually, uh, which is to its credit. Um, in some ways, it's been a very one-sided election, um, simply because so many of the advantages are with uh, Modi and the BJP. I mean, uh, you know, advantages in terms of having more of the press on their side, a lot more airtime, for example, um, but also uh, uh, just immensely more money to spend on the campaign, which makes a lot of difference. Uh, you know, uh, so at, at virtually every level, um, and more, you know, a more disciplined and larger numbers of troops on social media and so on. So there's a big advantage to one side. Uh, you know, just in terms of, of, of money, I mean, we're talking about, you know, sort of 80, 90% of the money all going to one party uh, and all the rest of, of the many, many parties having to scrabble to pick up the, the, the rest. Um, it's also one thing that's what's interesting and unusual about this campaign for India is it has a very sort of presidential quality to it. Um, I think more than any time in the past. I mean, in many ways, it's an election about Modi. I mean, the people who are voting for Modi are not just voting for his party, but many, many of them are voting for 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 Modi in per- personally. They may, may not even like his party. They might prefer some of the other other parties. Um, locally speaking, in local elections, they might vote for other parties, but nationally, they'll vote for Modi because they think he's a strong guy. Um, it's the same. The, the reverse is also true. There are people who are voting against Modi, uh, sort of tactically speaking, uh, at the national level. And I think that that sort of uh, you know, presidential style uh, uh, situation is is unusual. The difference is also, I mean, the the difference between this and a presidential election is that Modi doesn't really have a personality uh, opposing him of the same kind of stature. So it's not against, you know, he's not against another presidential style candidate, but it has this kind of presidential quality, which is unusual for India. Now, if if pre-election surveys can be believed, and that's a big if, because we know quite often they've gotten it wrong, it seems that the most likely outcome of this election is a BJP-led coalition government that has Prime Minister Modi at the helm, but as part of a wider coalition rather than a single-party majority. And I'd like both of you to sort of reflect on what you think the advantages and disadvantages of this scenario would be. So a slightly weaker BJP... Uh, a Modi that's not quite as domineering, uh, greater constraints, but some continuity um, in place. So, Alex, let me start with you. What do you think are the pros and cons of, of this kind of an outcome? Should we realize this on May 23rd? Okay, well, I'll, I'll um, start with some of the, the basics. Um, the, the, the pros, and, and in a way, like that leader we published um, is arguing in favor of, uh, 
a coalition as such, better to have a coalition than the kind of government we've had for the past five years, which is a bit counterintuitive in India and I, I think in all parliamentary systems. But our idea is that uh, if in coalition uh, a Modi government, a next Modi government, will be forced to rein in some of its excesses. Some of, in particular, these nasty Hindutva possibilities I mentioned earlier would be a lot harder to make fly if a government depended on the support of parties that have simply no interest in seeing them through. And that might be a blessing for the BJP as well if they can say, oh, we'd love to you know, give you the Ram Mandir, but, uh, but Jagan Mohan Reddy's party from Andhra doesn't like it. Or you know, they, can, they can point the finger to any of their new coalition members and use that as a reason not to do some of the more extreme things that they've promised uh, on the campaign trail. So that reigning in of excesses uh, would be a good thing. And then, and then the sort of coalition partners that we're mentioning, for instance, this Jagan's party, or say it's uh, Naveen Patnaik's from Odisha, or any of the parties. They, they tend to be coming from the south and the east, as it happens. Um, they, uh, they are good parties for tempering uh, the worst impulses of, uh, of a national government. Um, and it would be nice to see them represented in Delhi in a way that they haven't been recently. Uh, those are some of the advantages uh, that occur to me. Well, Max, let me just ask you this, because it's something that comes up in a lot of conversations that we have here in Washington and in other international capitals, which is people worry that the reform momentum would be lost with a coalition government, that this idea of improving India's investment climate, making it more hospitable for foreign investment pushing forward on, you know, this backlog of reforms that often get talked about, whether it's factor market reforms or disinvestment, privatization, uh, subsidy reform, that these would kind of fall by the wayside. Do you think that those things would be at risk if we were to see uh, a larger coalition set up? Well, I think that that's always a risk. I mean, it's actually a risk under the BJP government, to tell the truth, which has fallen away in the last couple of years very much from its reform uh, agenda. And I think it's important to, to remember, sort of if you look back in history, I mean, you know, some of the worst governments in Indian history or the biggest mistakes uh, uh, that Indian governments have made have been made by the strongest governments. I mean, if you look back to the emergency under Indira Gandhi, or some of the some of the the sort of tragic mistakes made when Rajiv Gandhi was in power in the 1980s with a with an absolute majority in in in, in the Lok Sabha. Uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, many of the, the 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 troubles that one is is still dealing with today date from 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 that period. And you could even say that another mistake was, for example, demonetization pushed through by the Modi government uh, with no opposition because there was no opposition to 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 be made uh, to to make the make the case. So I mean, there's a, there's I think it's 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 not unreasonable to say that strong governments have not necessarily been great for India. And the the reverse is also true that many of the most important reforms that have been made in the last 30 years uh, in, uh, uh, have been made by what looked to be rather weak coalition governments uh, where uh, you know many people had to be accommodated, but at the same time, they they because they were accommodating lots of people, they actually were more uh, you know they, they were more uh, um, representative in a way of India's wider public. So I think that uh, you know that has to be taken into account. And but I mean you know in terms of of, of how. Uh, uh, a government would function 
um, on of any you know any sort of coalition, uh, it, the, the the important thing is really going to be the numbers. Where are the numbers in the at the end of the the, the vote? Uh, you know, you need 272 uh, seats to to carry a majority, and a lot of what we're talking about will depend on where those numbers actually lie. If the BJP on its own is very close to a majority and just needs a few coalition partners, then there will be very few restraints on what Modi can do. Uh, if the BJP comes in with, with considerably fewer and really has to reach out to, to uh, uh, a lot of opposition figures, uh, it may be the case that um, one of the demands will be that Modi himself has to go, and uh, that's that's quite possible. So the numbers are, are are crucial in any kind of you know discussion of this. All right, so I want to end this show like we do every week, uh, asking both of you to nominate one story coming out of India that you think our listeners should be paying attention to, that maybe uh, haven't uh, hit their eyeballs yet. Max, what do you have for us this week? A story this week? Well, I think I mean as we, th this week, one thing that was important diplomatically. That that happened was that finally, after 10 years of Indian effort to make it happen, the uh, UN Security Council uh, actually labeled Masood Azhar, uh, the the leader of, of the, uh, um, what, what's it called? The, oh, uh, the Jaysh-e Mohammed. Jaysh in um, in Pakistan as a global terrorist, um, you know, India's been trying to get this done for a long time. But the reason I think it's an important story isn't so much that, that India India's diplomacy succeeded in at last getting the Security Council to agree to label this guy, who's pretty straightforwardly a terrorist leader. Uh, he's now been labeled a global global terrorist. Uh, it's it's why has it taken so long? That's the story that should be written. Why has it taken so long? Why is India counting this as a huge diplomatic success? I mean. A country of India's scale and ability and capacity should be, you know, should, this should be small potatoes, diplomatically speaking. And, I mean, this seems to show that India's really punching below weight, actually, I think. Uh, so I, I would say that that's, that's a story that needs to be told, is why, why is India punching so far below its weight, uh, diplomatically? Alex, what do you have for our listeners this week? So I would like to see, not that there haven't been any stories about it, but I would like to see a story about the, uh, the cyclone response in Odisha that um, really captured who was to thank and how they went about preparing the state uh, in preparation for, for cyclone, tropical cyclone Foni, um, such that the, the fatalities were kept to such a minimum. Uh, you know, some, some people, I'm thinking of Hari Kumar at the New York Times, have written about what a, what a feat that was. But I'm, I'm contrasting it to the way things happened in, I think it was October of 1999, when um, the last giant cyclone hit uh, Odisha. It was an enormous confusion. I think we, we left with an estimate that 10,000 people had died. If, if, if we're down to a dozen or dozens, uh, killed, then that means that the, the physical shape of the state and its disaster preparedness have just changed by several orders of magnitude. And, and I'm eager to learn, uh, as, as no particular reporting has shown me yet, what the nut, nuts and bolts of that improvement are down to. And it could also be a feather in the cap of Naveen Patnaik, who, of course, is uh, uh, on the ballot twice, in a sense, once for the parliamentary elections and, and once for the state assembly elections. Uh, let me ask you guys, uh, starting with you, Alex, who do you think had the best week in India this past week? Well, it's funny you should say, Millen, because... I was going to nominate uh, Naveen Padnayak, and for just the reason you said. Um, now, I, uh, the fact is, I don't know how much of uh, 
the disaster preparedness that we're applauding is, is due to him, but he's been such a monumental presence in the state for the last 20 years and change that I'm, I'm, I'm sure it's some of it. It, it might also be uh, things that have happened at the central government level, uh, in the civil services, or, or perhaps just natural economic changes, more PACA housing. But Naveen Patnaik has come out of this week looking very good, and, and um, he's collected some very direct praise uh, from Narendra Modi. Uh, of course, uh, we're looking at, at Patnaik's party as a possible coalition partner uh, for Modi's. And as his former protege, uh, Jay Panda, has, has become the chief thorn in his side, I believe he faced uh, Lok Sabha elections uh, as a BJP candidate last week, uh, it, it, it might be very satisfying for Naveen Patnaik uh, to be able to um, uh, collect uh, the prime minister's support against this upstart uh, on, on the heels of this, this uh, disaster or disaster nearly averted. So I'd say it's been a very good week uh, for Chief Minister Patnaik. All right, Max, who had the best week uh, in India for you? I would say um, Rahul Gandhi, oddly enough, um, who really needs it badly because he hasn't been doing so, so well in this campaign. Um, I think, you know, this week, one of the things that that boosted him was that uh, uh, Prime Minister Modi, uh, who's been on the sort of in attack mode uh, in a lot of his speeches, decided to go after Rajiv Gandhi, Rahul Gandhi's father, and label him as corrupt number one. Uh, and in fact, uh, this seems to have had a pretty negative response from uh, certainly in social media, widely in the press, and also from uh, other opposition leaders. Um, and so I think you know uh, there's a sort of, sort of sympathy that, that Rahul Gandhi has, has gained from that. Um, and he's, by contrast to Modi looking churlish and aggressive, uh, Rahul has looked uh, sort of, you know, statesmanlike and reasonable uh, by contrast. So I think I think that's been actually very good for Rahul. And and not just not just that uh, he was calling him Brashtachari or corrupt number one, but he said he ended his life as corrupt number one, referring to uh, Rajiv Gandhi's assassination by terrorists. Uh, that's really I think what what um, dug his heels in and, and made it look like such a vicious insult. All right, so from best to the worst, Alex, who do you think had the worst week in India? So I'm going to go with a slightly gossipy choice. I think that uh, it was an unusually, startlingly bad week for one of uh, Bollywood's best-loved actors, the the highly charismatic Akshay Kumar, uh, who's probably even now scratching his head and wondering how things got so ugly for him so quickly, again, uh, on social media. Now, Akshay Kumar is probably the biggest male star... um, in Mumbai, whose, whose name isn't Khan, um, made the mistake, I guess, it's now looking like a mistake, of doing a puff piece interview with Modi, which, which he, Akshay, called a non-political interview, all caps in the tweet that introduced it, and served in a very slick way to burnish the personal appeal of the prime minister. So far, so normal. That was a couple of weeks ago. But then what really caught fire this week is the fact that Akshay Kumar, like a lot of uh, privileged uh, Indians or Indian types these days, holds a foreign passport. He's a Canadian national. This is something he's been vague about and fudged in the past, but suddenly he has a lot of critics that he never had before. He was doing this kind of soft work for the sitting prime minister. 
and people who have just taken to dragging him mercilessly for being a Canadian citizen. India doesn't allow dual citizenship, of course, so that means that Akshay Kumar couldn't vote and so on. The implication being he shouldn't weigh in on Indian politics or have any opinion about who's a patriot and who isn't. And he's clearly been at pains to defend himself from some of this vitriol, which has just kept pouring in day after day. And uh, he's, he's one of the best loved figures in popular culture these days, but he's not feeling very loved at all this week. So I say a bad week for Akshay Kumar. Bad week for Akshay Kumar. Max, who had a bad week in your bad books? A lot of people have bad weeks this week. Uh, I, I'll give the, the cake to, to uh, MJ Akbar, uh, who is a uh, you know, former minister of state, uh, and a quite powerful figure within the BJP. Uh, also, once a very, very powerful and important uh, news editor um, and founder of magazines and really one of the most powerful people in, in the Indian media for a very long time. Uh, his career took a serious downturn last year when uh, he got caught up in the Me Too campaign and was, 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 was uh, accused of serial sexual harassment uh, of many, many people. Um, this week, he was actually up in court for the first time and had to present his case. Uh, he's, ch he's filed a suit against one of his accusers um, of, for, for defamation. Um, and unfortunately, his court appearance uh, was not particularly... Uh, 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 wasn't good for him, I don't think. Um, so not only did he, has he shown up in court, having been fired from the government last year, but um, face to face his accusers, but his defense started off by listing all the books that he's written, uh, stating how important he is, uh, and it just made him look puffed up, actually. It doesn't make him look like he's facing the actual you know, charges, the actual uh, uh, accusations. So I, 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 he's, he's someone who's gone, going through a rather painful sort of public disgrace, uh, and I would give him the worst week. So Max, Alex, uh, this show will air on Wednesday. It sounds like you haven't been getting enough uh, Twitter trolls, so we will do our best part to get you some more. Um, thanks so much for your reporting, and we look forward to your commentary and analysis after May 23rd when the results are out. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Milan. Thank you, Milan. So after a quick break, I'll be back to talk with Rahul Verma about his new book on ideology in Indian elections. My guest on the show today is Rahul Verma. Rahul is a fellow at the Center for Policy Research in New Delhi and is finishing up his PhD at the University of California, Berkeley. He's also the co-author of a fascinating new book on Indian politics called Ideology and Identity, The Changing Party Systems of India. It's a terrific read that busts a lot of myths about how Indian politics works. And it also helps make sense of our current political moment. Rahul, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So for 70 years, basically since India's independence, the idea that politics in India is ideology-free has become part of the conventional wisdom among analysts, journalists, scholars. In your new book, you systematically call out this received wisdom. So let's start from the very beginning. Why have we gotten it wrong for this long? So I have two fold answer to this question. First, I think, uh, and you would sort of agree with me on this, that the study of Indian politics for long has been sort of like non-empirical. And this is changing, but for on, not just on the ideology question, but on many things, uh, we have hypotheses, we have beliefs, 
but we don't have good evidence to back those hypotheses. So, for example, every analyst or journalist or scholar would sort of like talk that, you know, politicians in India change uh, their party labels without a tug in their heart. Now, like, we all know this happens, but we don't have any evidence to, like, so we don't know what is the proportion of politicians who leave one party and join others, and how many win in the subsequent elections, right? So what it has done is that it, it has given to a lot of, like, theories and hypotheses, which sort of needs to be tested. Second, and related to this is uh, the idea that, like, so because it has been the study of Indian politics, especially electoral politics has remained non-empirical, we don't have a good framework or a theory of how Indians vote. And so what has happened uh, is that because we think that politicians change political parties, voters change political parties, so there are no like long-term issues that hold voter and party linkages. So that's the first reason. Second, we have basically taken this like study of ideology as it is done in Western Europe and North America, which is basically economic left-right, and people saw Indian politics and political parties in India do not necessarily distinguish themselves on economic left and right, and that's why we thought that Indian politics is non-ideological. So, so basically, you know, we believe that Indian politics is non-ideological because we've sort of simplistically assumed that politics everywhere works on the same left-right spectrum that prevails in the United States. But in the book, you argue that's not really the case. So, you know, what are the ideological cleavages that do matter in Indian politics? So, so there are two things. One, we're not at all saying that economic ideology does not matter in Indian politics at all. So what we're doing in this book, and we, the Chibber and I are doing in this book, is one, we're looking at sort of 100 years of Indian politics. And we do argue that it seems with the burgeoning of middle class, economic ideology may play a role in this election or next election, but for long it has not played a role. And the reason that the, like, uh, when, when we talk about economic left and right, we always think in terms of like market versus the state. And in that sense, if you look at like Indian politics, this market versus state distinction was not there for sure like 10 years ago. This may be coming up. We don't know. There are hints of data, uh, hints of this thing happening in the data. But, like, if you look at long horizon of Indian politics long in the long terrain, this has not been one of the most distinguishing features. And we need to sort of, like, uh, remember that the context over ideas are born in historical moments. So economic left-right or church versus state privileges in West Europe or was born in a historical moment of reformation, industrial revolution. Most countries of developing world were colonies. They became independent nation states overnight. So they didn't go through those historical experiences. They were undergoing a very different historical experience. And so what we do is basically we read uh, what Indian, India's founding fathers were sort of like, because there were only few women in the constituent assembly. So what basically our freedom fighters were talking about, debating about. Uh, so we read through the constituent assembly debates, we read through freedom movement documents, and we realized that, that there are certain things on which most of the debates were taking place. 
So one of those debates in a multi-ethnic country like India, which is not surprising, the debate was about how you are going to incorporate uh, various groups into the body politics. So the biggest debates were happening on the quota, reservation, and those kind of things. Similarly, given like the independent India was a Hindu majority country, the second debate was happening and, and the partition with Pakistan had just happened. So the second big debate around the, like during the independence movement and in the aftermath was on whether the Indian state should have a majority Indian characteristic, uh, meaning whether it should show uh, a Hindu characteristic. So, so that became the first ideological axis for us, which was about incorporating various groups into the body politic and what kind of characteristics the Indian state is going to have. And we call it as politics of recognition. The second uh, ideological axis for us is what we call as politics of statism, which means how much, what, what would be the role of the state in sort of transforming society by intervening in social norms or redistributing private property. So, so, so that becomes the second field. And, 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 and if you look at the second, like, the big debates that were happening was on Hindu code bill in 1940s and 50s. In 1880s, it was about the age of consent bill. So there were people like Nehru and Ambedkar who wanted to use the levers of the state to remake the society and bring certain changes. But there were other people like Gandhi who would say that the state should not be intervening and making laws to change things. If there are, like, bad things happening in the society, the society is going to reform itself. And so that becomes the second axis on which the ideological conflict sort of develops. So where, it, you know, if you if we care about statism and we care about recognition, what mm-hmm. combinations of these two factors define the BJP and which combination defines the Congress? Okay, okay. So, so, so for long, like if you, if you look at Indian party system, BJS, uh, Bharti Janssen, which was the predecessor of, of uh, uh, BJP, they basically started with a party which opposed politics of recognition. So they always talked about, and till now they always talk about one India, right? So, so they, they basically did not want a politics which is going to be based on group rights. They, they sort of favored individual rights in that sense. Uh, and Congress, especially like Nehru, basically started with, with group rights. So Congress favored recognition and was somewhat ambivalent on that position, but still favored recognition in comparison to BJP. BJP was opposed to politics of recognition. Similarly, BJP was opposed to politics of statism. They did not want intervention in, 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 uh, in social norms. Whereas Congress, again, like in the Nehruvian era, was sort of in the center. They, they favored more statism. But slowly, with, with, with Indra Gandhi, they moved like further on politics of statism. They favored more statism. So Indra Gandhi not only intervened in social norms, uh, by, by basically, uh, making Dawi illegal or Sati legal 
but she also sort of like took the mantle of the state and 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 tried to intervene in economic relations as well by say bank nationalization uh uh removing uh, the fundamental right to property so many of those things i would say that the communist parties and some of the socialist parties in the first and second party system would be sort of like more in favor of recognition and more in favor of statism so because the first big challenge to the congress party came from the socialist and communist congress party to respond those challenges moved further in favor of recognition and statism which basically opened up the state for fragmented right wing to coalesce together in the second party system so what you see is basically uh like fragmented right wing smaller right wing parties coming together and forming like one big alliance under bjs whereas because congress kept on shifting its position on statism and recognition in many parts of the country it became like ideologically very similar to the socialist party statism and a little bit on the question of recognition the politics has moved rightward or in favor of bjp as that says or the middle has moved in favor of so you know the former bjp minister arun shori famously stated that the the present bjp government of narendra modi is nothing more than you know upa or the congress alliance plus cow based on your own yeah. reading of things is this too simplistic a caricature so do i agree with that statement uh i don't know what arishwari means by cow right like so uh cow could be met, like metaphorically used to say many things uh so so and so i i would say that like i think that's a very simple caricature of what bjp and nda is a modi's politics is so 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 just like like think of like couple of issues right so if cow is a representation of uh majoritarian politics which includes uh, bjp's position on say national security or pakistan then perhaps yes but more than that bjp is also showing very different like bjp is doing very different things which is which 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 which, which upa plus cow is not going to capture but they're following their ideological line on many things uh, for example uh, the citizenship bill in in northeast india right which is which has a characteristic of like hindu majoritarian politics uh but but that has been there like ideological plan for a long period of time similarly on the question of reservation what bjp so so they have basically extended reserve 10% reservation to economically weaker sections among the general caste but what is bjp doing one they are using this reservation plan as a electoral strategy but also what they are doing is changing the debate on reservation so far reservation had been sort of like group identity based was about historical reservations whereas what bjp has done is is basically changed the conception of reservations so reservations were given on the basis of caste and identity and what it is doing is, is basically 
changing that debate from class to class. So, so now economics becomes a criteria whether someone is going to get reservations or not. So, so in some senses, if you look a lot of the preservation movements that were taking place in India, the Jats, the Partidars, the Marathas and other places, uh, it was very evident and some journalists and even some social scientists wrote about it that these groups are asking reservations in name of scrapping it. And a very interesting statement by Hardik Patel, uh, and it was quoted in, I think, Hindustan Times, the statement was, either make us the slave of this system or scrap it for everyone. Uh, so either no one gets it or even we should also get benefit of it. Similarly, on, on other questions, right, like... Uh, BJP and Congress has a very different conception of welfare politics. They also have a very different conception of like development. So, so Congress would come up with a right-based approach of national rural employment guarantee scheme. BJP hasn't come anything very similar, right? BJP would rather talk about uh, that if you can, why not give up your subsidies on gas cylinders? Uh, similarly, like previous BJP government also under uh, Vajpayee, they will talk about like one nation connecting it through various things. So they talked about golden quadrilateral, east, west, north, south corridors. They talked about interlinking of rivers. This time Modi is talking about basically one nation, one pole. Whereas Congress practices a very different kind of like... Uh, Federalism, I'm not saying they're like, like in deeply in favor of federal politics, but BJP and Congress also differs on how they practice the politics of federalism. So I think like it would be a very simple caricature of like saying Modi government is just UPA plus cow. So in 2014, the BJP managed to create this sort of unique coalition of economic conservatives and social conservatives. And a lot of people mm-hmm. have said this is similar to what the Republican Party has done in the United States to bring these two together. Mm-hmm. But you point to some emerging cracks in the BJP's coalition. So just looking forward, what are some of the risk factors that could upset this equilibrium or this coalition for the BJP? Okay, so so, so that teaching. The first one is uh, basically, many social scientists are saying that post-2014, the way BJP has been expanding its social and political footprint across the country, we are, for all practical purposes, in a second dominant party system. Now, this is not like same as the Congress dominant system, where Congress like was a hegemonic force in some senses. BGP still is sort of grappling with victories in some places, defeats in other places. But what has happened that BGP has become the focal point of electoral competition. So all alignments or realignments are going to uh, happen either in favor or against the BGP. Uh, now, what it does is that whenever a party is in such an expansionist mode, they are going, there are going to be some inbuilt contradictions that would creep in. So one of those contradictions is just like representational blockage, 
which happened with the Congress Party also in 1970s when Congress was the dominant hegemonic force. When you are getting votes from very various segments of the society and fail to incorporate those in positions of power, they, there are going to be rips. So what has happened within BJP is that its social base has gradually changed. Now there are more other backward classes and SCs, scheduled caste and scheduled tribes voting for the BJP in comparison to the upper caste, if you look at like last 20 years. But the leadership structure of the BJP has not changed in that sense. So most of the members of parliament representing BJP are from upper caste. Most of the cabinet ministers, most of the chief ministers are upper caste. So in that sense, now there would be like a divide where the leadership is still held by the upper caste, but the social base has sort of democratized in that sense. So that would be the first crack which like is appearing in some senses because many of the like scheduled caste MPs have out like spoken against the policies that that is practiced by various BJP government. They think that BJP governments are not taking care of their constituents. The second one is basically uh, on the question of this quota versus majoritarianism. So there is some evidence that the urban educated middle class youth uh, is not in like is not in favor of like quota because they think that the system should be meritorious, but they are not showing similar kind of anti-Muslim politics which was evident in surveys which were conducted 10 or 15 or 20 years ago. So for for a long period of time, the anti-quota group uh, and the anti-Muslim group was the same. Uh, in last four, five, seven years, what has started happening is that these two groups are getting dealing. So uh, it's not necessary that if you are anti-quota, you're also likely to be anti-Muslim or vice versa. Uh, so so that, that's going to be another challenge. Now, how do you manage those two contradictions? The third one is basically on the politics of statism. Now, when you, like, then as a social conservative party, uh, your leadership is going, is continuing, they're continuously making rhetorics on, uh, like, say, on Valentine's Day. Or, or on marital norms or other things. Whereas the global messages, like, so, not, so the youth in urban or rural areas is now connected to global media, right? Like they are on the WhatsApp, on Facebook, on Twitter. Uh, they watch, uh, new things on television and news channels. And so in some senses, this, the changes in the political in economy and the informational environment is changing the perception of youth on some of the questions related to marriage norms uh, and, and, and say what is acceptable or not acceptable, uh, which does not mean that the youth has become completely liberal on many questions, right? Like, so they, 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 they have become liberal on dating, but it doesn't mean that they want to extend equal uh, rights to women on every sphere. So what, so, so, so youth is showing, um, like, a contradictory character on some of the questions. 
saying that this would be the third dimension on which the crack has appeared, that the party leadership harps back to rhetoric that they were making 20-25 years ago on the question of who should date whom, uh, love jihad, marriage norms, whereas like an important segment of BJP's electorate does not share the same view. And this could be very, very evident from the fact like the way BJP has intervened in many of the university campuses and the recent polls showing that the biggest slide of vote for BJP is happening among the younger segments of Indian population. So Rahul, I want to thank you for coming on the show. Um, I highly recommend your new book, co-authored with Pradeep Chibber, Ideology and Identity, The Changing Party Systems of India. Um, you can find it in bookstores and online. Thanks for joining us, Rahul. Thank you so much, Milan. Thank you so much. Grant the Masha is a co-production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and the Hindu Sun Times. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to rate and review. It helps others find the show more easily. For more information about the show and to find the writing we reference on this week's episode, visit our website, grantthemasha.com. Production assistance comes from Jamie Hinson and Rachel Osnos. Tim Martin's our audio engineer, and Lauren Duax, our executive producer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.